We've done a very bad job of designing policy for the day when Kim Jong-un dies. And so if he kicks the bucket, we don't know what, what the disposition of nuclear command and control will be. Hey, welcome back to another episode of the Modern War Institute podcast. I'm John Amble, Editorial Director at MWI, and my guest on this episode is Dr. Van Jackson. He teaches international relations at Victoria University of Wellington in New Zealand, and he is the author of a recent book called On the Brink, about the U.S.-North Korea relationship, especially over the past few years and with respect to the nuclear weapons component of that relationship. He is also the host of the Undiplomatic Podcast, which is an excellent podcast to check out for really insightful, honest, engaging, and entertaining takes on foreign policy. And he's a really smart observer of North Korea, which, if it weren't for the coronavirus pandemic, inevitably sort of crowding out a lot of other topics in media coverage, would be all over the news right now. Is Kim Jong-un alive or dead? We don't know. What happens in North Korea if he's out of the picture, and what does it mean for the region and for international security? That's what you'll hear in this conversation. Before we get to it, as always, a couple notes. First, be sure you're subscribed to the MWI podcast so you don't miss an episode. You can find us on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, TuneIn, literally anywhere you get your podcasts. Second, I don't think we have a lot of young children subscribing to the podcast, but if you happen to have kids around while you're listening, you might want to put some headphones on because there are just one or two instances of adult language. And lastly, as always, what you hear in this episode are the views of the participants and don't represent those of West Point, the Army, or any other agency of the U.S. government. All right, here's my conversation with Van Jackson. Van, thank you so much for joining this episode of the Modern War Institute podcast. Thanks for having me. So listeners heard a little bit about you in the intro to this episode, but really one thing that I, I, I think is important to highlight is that you are a really insightful North Korea watcher, uh, which makes you an excellent guest to discuss a pretty timely topic, which is maybe the best way to put it is what the heck is going on in North Korea. So, you know, of course, recognizing that any take on this naturally has a pretty short shelf life because things can change any day. Um, I don't think there's probably any better place to start than that. What the heck is going on in North Korea? Well, I mean, the hot topic right now, the thing that makes this all uh, super newsworthy is kind of the guessing game about whether Kim Jong-un is alive and what his health is. Um, we, people, when, when, when we talk about North Korea, people get obsessed in a very TMZ-like way with discerning facts that are knowable but that we cannot possibly know and like whether he's dead of course that's something that's knowable can we find it out no not until they tell us right or like not until they make an announcement the, the odds that we're going to find a smoking gun very low uh, before they make an announcement either way or he makes a reappearance or whatever and that's that's very much the case with north korea all the time. It's just a different question sparks interest at different moments. And so right now it's like, a, is he or isn't he about whether he's in, alive or not? And what we know is that Kim Jong-un is super unhealthy. Um, you don't need a, a, a medical degree to see how unhealthy he is. Uh, he has every bad habit on the planet and he's probably under a lot of strain as, as a one-man dictator. And um, 
he's got some sort of health issue. He had some surgery that made him miss some pretty important um, celebrations that are actually very important to the legitimacy of his own rule. And so that, that's an indicator that he is in uh, what CNN called, quote unquote, grave danger. And he's probably not dead yet, though, because China sent um, what was called medical teams to North Korea, although the Chinese foreign ministry is now saying that um, they were for coronavirus test kits, not for Kim Jong-un assessments. Um, but what China says is like often not credible. So we can sort of take that with a grain of salt. And, and so that's basically where we are. Unhealthy guy. He's going to die prematurely, uh, probably not far from now, but he isn't dead quite yet. Um, so this is, this is one of these like uh, known unknown things. Like it's, it's, it's eminently knowable. We know it's going to happen at some point. We just can't predict precisely when. Um, and so it's sort of incumbent on us to like maximize our chances to uh, or position ourselves with the greatest favor for when that day comes, right? What will that, what, what is, what, what is likely to happen? And then kind of backwards plan from that based on our interest. And is there any precedent? I mean, have we seen this in, uh, not just, you know, in, with the current, uh, with Kim Jong-un, but with his, his father or grandfather, is there any precedent for, you know, starting to see some media reports that, Hey, he wasn't in a place where we would normally have expected to see him. You start getting some sort of rumors maybe circulating around the, within the global community. Uh, is there, is there, is there a precedent? Yeah, uh, actually a lot of precedent. Um, with Kim Jong-un himself, despite being young, in 2014, it was rumored that he was dead uh, because he just disappeared from the spotlight for like six weeks. Um, and we never really found out what that was about. People speculated it was, again, because of his health. Uh, he's, just a, he's just a fat dude who <laughs> smokes a lot and drinks a lot. He has like a very like, uh, undisciplined lifestyle. Um, and his, the, his dad, I can't remember about Kim Il-sung, his grandfather, but his dad also disappeared many times throughout his rule. And every time it led to speculation that maybe he was dead. But of course, eventually it's true, right? We're like, none of us are long for this world, depending on how you measure it. So, and is there, um, you know, we, I think maybe there's this general sense that in, in, such an authoritarian regime where power is consolidated in, in, in this one single figure. Is there concern about how the, how the state continues to function during a period like this? Yeah, that's the worry. I mean, so the, the upside is that North Korea as a regime is generally far more stable than, than we, we think or we fear. There's a huge, despite being one man rule, there's a huge, bureaucracy and set of like Byzantine institutions that are all interlocking with lots of elite officials who are dual hatted and triple hatted, uh, very incestuous at the top. And all of that reinforces, um, you know, like a Machiavellian solidarity, uh, uh, that keeps the regime in control. Um, and they all, they all work for Kim Jong-un, like he's the veto player, but, um, they, they're the ones who make the trains run on time, um, for lack of a better phrase. And that all still exists. And those elites that are interlocking at the top are heavily invested in the status quo most of the time. 
um, the uncertainty if like Kim Jong-un kicks the bucket too soon and a successor has not been designated, which it has not as far as we know, because he wasn't expecting to, to die so quickly. In that case, there could be a mix of like opportunism and fear among some of these elites who would normally be marching in line. And that's where just like vast uncertainties begin to open. And that's where concern starts to happen um, about civil war, but also like just palace coup politics. And is it possible, you know, you're a pretty close observer of this stuff. Um, is it possible for observers to have any sense of what some of those sort of the power dynamics that exist bef- below the level of Kim Jong-un, um, mm. what those look like, who is most likely to, to say emerge out of some of that palace intrigue that might, that might occur. Um, so at an individual level, it's truly impossible to like pinpoint. And it's again, like at the individual level, it's, we get into that space of the guessing game about facts that are like, you know, sort of noble, but, uh, not, not quite predictable, um, or that we can't know. The, the, the useful way to think about it is like you have, you have the party, which is, you know, mostly civilian political cadre. You have, uh, the bureaucracy itself, like, uh, the equivalent of the executive branch, right? Foreign ministry, et cetera. Um, and then you have, um, the military. And so these are three very different interest groups. And the foreign ministry is like a, a bit player compared to uh, the KPA, the military, and, and the party. It's, it, the main divide is between party and military. And under Kim Jong-il, uh, Kim Jong-un's dad, the way he ruled was bureaucratic. It was through institutions, and his rule was not very secure. So he was constantly playing one set of institutions off of another. And as part of that game, he elevated the role of the military, um, in part because he was not a military man himself, and he needed the loyalty of the military um, in order to stay in power. So um, he initiated this like military first policy, and uh, the military took center stage in North Korean life. And North Korea as a regime looks, it, it conducts foreign policy like you would expect from a like rapacious military dictatorship for that whole period. Under Kim Jong-un, the military is entrenched. It's like, I don't want to overstate it, but he has made a whole bunch of decisions and purged a whole bunch of people as part of a pattern of consolidating rule in, in him personally, like charismatic leadership, not less, less so through institutions as compared to his dad. And what he's done that by elevating the role of um, the party, the Korean Workers' Party, and civilian political loyalist elites and, and family members uh, over the old crusty generals. And so the military in relative terms has been kind of um, subordinated or disempowered a little bit under Kim Jong-un. But, um, and so the organizationally or bureaucratically, the way um, the, the real question is like, is the party going to ascend after Kim Jong-un or is the military going to ascend after Kim Jong-un? It's more than likely going to be the military um, they have the guns in the organization. Um, the, and then there's like a, a peripheral question about whether a Kim family member will take the reins, um, either substantively or as a figurehead, although none of them are, are well suited to the job, which adds to the uncertainty. 
And is there, you know, I like the way you frame that in terms of institutions. Um, is there from, say, from an international perspective, and maybe even more specifically from a U.S. perspective, is there one institution, be it the party or the military, that uh, we would maybe prefer to see because it would lead to greater stability in the region? Or is that just unknowable? Uh, all things being equal, we would probably prefer the party. Um, the the It's all lose-lose for us, though, because we have zero inroads into North Korea. Um, we've, we've done a very bad job of designing policy for the day when Kim Jong-un dies. Like, it's just not something that has factored into any of the planning or strategy that we've done up to this point. Um, and so if if you enter into a scenario in North Korea where leadership is thrown into like a succession crisis and you need to know who's in power or who's vying for power um, in order to figure out how to best position yourself. To, to figure that stuff out, you need to have um, ties to elites in the regime. You need to have relationships. Like that's, that's like the, there's no better source of intel than that. Um, and in this case, it's like Intel is the prerequisite for designing competent policy. And we have not done that because we've, you know, uh, a coercive approach and isol uh, isolation campaign against North Korea, maximum pressure, all these things that we've done well before Trump, um, but even more so under Trump, they, they have worked in the opposite way. Like we have isolated North Korea from us. We've isolated ourselves from North Korea. The consequence of that we, we've been doing it for a very specific purpose, and um, it's debatable whether that's actually it's not debatable. It's been a failure, but um, the the reason that we did that had a consequence beyond what our intention was, which is that like in certain scenarios, like a disillusion of leadership or competition for leadership, we are very poorly positioned, not just to influence North Korea, but to understand what's happening in real time. Um, so we've kind of handicapped ourselves. And is there, um, you know, maybe in the region, South Korea or China, are there, are either of those states better positioned to influence or is the degree to which say, you know, the, the sort of superficial narrative is that we can lean on China because China can, you know, can sort of pull some strings and, and make things happen in North Korea. Uh, is that overstated? And is China's influence on, say, a succession um, also limited? Yeah, it's way overstated. Uh, it's one of the biggest myths in North Korea policy. Probably the biggest is that China and North Korea, or that China can influence North Korea. Um, it, it really can't. There's a lot of antipathy in that relationship. They're just sort of reluctant strategic partners because um, they both need each other in different ways, but they hate each other. There's a lot of mistrust. And because of that, North Korea has always, like, I mean, going back to the, the 60s, they've always pursued a, an independent foreign policy. Uh, and that doesn't mean that they don't take aid when they can get it. It doesn't mean that they won't have support from a great power patron, but the support that they get from China, um, trade, investment aid, that never translates into Chinese leverage. North Korea is like just bizarrely defiant. Um, and it, it, there's like historical reasons for that, going back to like 1956 and some Communist Party plenum thing. Um, 
the Soviets and the Chinese were involved in a conspiracy to overthrow Kim Il-sung. Um, and then Kim Il-sung found out. And um, so it, there was permanent distrust after that. And then that was one of the that was part of the reason why Kim Il-sung built up a cult of personality to insulate his rule from outside great power interference. Um, and that that legacy has lived on and, you know, become even more so over time. And so China is not any kind of solution on North Korea. And in fact, if there's a, uh, a succession crisis or a civil war, China is our most likely um, adversary. Like that's the scenario. I was in a, I was in a meeting with Henry Kissinger, not me and him, but like he was in the room with me um, maybe like four or five years ago. And he said to my face that he thought that Korea was the one place where China and the U S could end up in a fight. And uh, it's what I've, what I've believed for a long time is that it is the most likely place that um, the U S and China would end up in a conflict. And that's just 180 degrees different from the, the conventional narrative that like China is our partner on North Korea. It's like, no, North Korea is going to be the reason we end up in world war three with China. What about the perspectives of other um, regional stakeholders, specifically South Korea, um, maybe to, to some extent also Japan? Um, what are they, what, what is their sort of perspective on this entire crisis right now? Is that something you've been watching? Yeah, South Korea is interesting because um, North Korea is a dividing line in South Korean politics. It's like, it's one of the defining issues of where the, whether you're on the left or right in South Korea is is your preferences on North Korea. And so what we have right now is a very super empowered um, political left in South Korea. They, they have captured the Blue House. They're going to be there for at least a couple more years. And then they just had this big um, landslide election in the National Assembly. And this domestic politics stuff ends up mattering because the, the left in South Korea is extremely dovish on North Korea. Uh, to the point of like ignoring all evidence to the contrary, they they want an uh, a peace process with North Korea, irrespective and like dramatic uh, aid and investment to North Korea, irrespective of of progress that we might make on the nuclear issue or not, and um, that that is very different from the South Korean conservatives who controlled South Korean politics for the ten years prior to uh, the progressives coming in. So from like 2007 to 2017, basically, conservatives ran the show and they're exceedingly hawkish on North Korea. Um, and they were preparing all manner of um, war and preventive attack options uh, against North Korea. That, you know, North Korea is the sworn enemy to the Korean right, but they're the wayward cousin um, to the Korean left. And in, um, in a sort of, so the South Korean left right now has very strong politically motivated reasons to downplay speculation about North Korea, um, to downplay the prospect of, you know, Kim Jong-un kicking the bucket too soon, or like what would happen in a succession crisis, because that would really throw a wrench in any kind of like peace process plans. Um, and the South Korean right, you know, from what I understand, like I have, I have friends on both sides of this, but from what I understand of the South Korean right, it's like, if they see 
uh, instability in North Korea, they want to use it as an excuse to go north. I mean, they want to use it to activate the alliance to like forcibly unify the peninsula, um, which is like pretty extreme. Um, and so that's that's kind of the South Korean view is like there is not one view of North Korea. There's two very, very starkly contrasting views. And if you talk to South Koreans, you get you don't get that nuance or that contrast. You get one story and whoever you're talking to is going to tell you that's the reality. Um, but they're giving you like one side of the story inevitably. So in, in you know, speaking in terms of um, a, a potential succession crisis, um, how do North Korea's um, nuclear program and ballistic missile programs play into this from a, from an international perspective? Uh, well, that's one of the big concerns. Um, and I mean, this is like, you know, the army has invested in a WMD elimination mission. You know, they're, they, they're, they try to be opaque about the country that they have in mind for this kind of thing. But like, obviously it's primarily geared toward North Korea in a kind of like collapse scenario where you need to secure WMD. It's pretty fanciful. It, it, you need to do the planning, but it's pretty uh, fanciful in the sense that like a, an American soldier is, n- is not going to go into North Korea in the middle of a succession crisis and secure, you know, a nuclear facility. It's just not going to happen short of, of world war three or like, it'll be a pathway to world war three. Um, but, the, the fear is that, as far as we know, I have to be careful here, Kim Jong-un holds, like, he, he boasts of having his finger on the nuclear button, and that that's, that's actually true. Um, not that there's, like, a specific nuclear button, but command and, nuclear command and control resides in him personally. There is no delegated... Um, alternative process there's no delegated trigger like a dead hand kind of thing um he because he doesn't have the trust in his own system which is not surprising for like a insecure dictatorship and so if he kicks the bucket we don't know what what the disposition of nuclear command and control will be um there could be some 25 year old like poor sucker who is physically sitting there with procedures for launching a nuke but has no authority and doesn't know where to take orders from you know and like that's that's a scary thought um and in a civil war there's all kinds of pressures to show outward strength um and there's all kinds of pressures for like different warring parties to show that they are the ones who are like in control or representing the country and that's highly volatile um Oh, we also do know that most North Korean nuclear weapons are up near the Chinese border so as to be away from U.S. forces and South Korea. And that gives China a unique advantage in um, securing North Korean WMD. And while that would be in our interest in theory, we would have no situational awareness on like what China is actually doing with that stuff. And it would also mean that China is effectively invading North Korea, which um, even for the South Korean left would be a huge problem. Um, so there's this this whole thing is like just very geopolitically fraught, and then layered on top of it is all these uncertainties about North Korean nukes and missiles. 
So I want to circle back to something you talked about earlier. You kind of um, traced very briefly kind of the history of U.S. policy toward North Korea um, over you know several administrations. If our sort of lack of insight into and and certainly lack of influence on you know what what's happening or what could happen in in North Korea is a function of those sort of longer term policy trends, are there any short term steps that could be taken now to better position ourselves? Um, not only if if it comes out in coming weeks that Kim Jong Un is dead, um, but Presumably, as you said, he eventually is going to die, and probably not in, far off into the future. Are there kind of immediate things that we can take to to, to better position ourselves from a planning um, perspective? Yeah, I mean, there's no, there's definitely no silver bullet, and nothing will be sufficient because we're just in such an unfavorable position right now. Like we've kind of screwed ourselves. But the things you can do on the margins is try to establish a mill mill relationship, like a channel. Um, on the order of what we have done with China before the, the, the relationship with China went, went to shit, um, we spent the better part of a decade and a half taking an approach to China where we, um, we engaged with them um, in, in our, our militaries engaged with each other pretty regularly. And we had our strategists, like nuclear strategists especially, kind of like defense intellectuals also engaging with each other. And part of that was like probing the intentions of both sides, but it was also giving both sides a venue to explain and rationalize their thinking about um, coercion and deterrence to avoid misunderstanding. And this sounds like very fluffy, but the, the value of that in the North Korea context cannot be overstated because of how little we actually know. Um, to be able to get in a room with, you know, the equivalent of like North Korean strategists and then learn from them their perspective on things would, would just be a huge boon to our knowledge of the enemy. Um, and that has practical import. Like in the case of China, that reinforced strategic stability with China. So we had mutual vulnerability at a nuclear level with China. And what policymakers did, you know, certain aspects of this bet obviously didn't work out with like political reform and democratization and all that. But um, the parts of the bet that did work were enhancing strategic stability. Like we took the baseline of mutual vulnerability, which is stability based on, on fear. And then we wrapped it in um, a stability based on economic interdependence and a stability based on um, deconflicting theories of victory um, so that we, we, didn't like we reduced the risks or the chances of um, inadvertent escalation and conflict spirals. And so it wasn't any, there wasn't any one source of policy that explains Sino US stability. It was a package. We were ensconcing, we were reinforcing the baseline of mutual vulnerability based stability with other sources. Um, and the mill mill relationship was part of that. And, um, as long as we're not naive about what this can achieve in terms of like reforms with North Korea, there's a lot of strategic value in doing that kind of thing. Um, we're just in a knowledge deficit and interaction with the enemy could really help with that. Given that, um, 
given that even even those short term steps are, are something that takes some time to kind of build and probably are not you know they're not certainly something that can spring up in the next week in the middle of this of, of this crisis it seems that we're we're left just sort of watching on the sidelines and hoping for the best if and and this is a hypothetical um but if if you know the the potential um for a for a succession crisis does emerge does take shape um and it does you know conflict within the state starts to break out um you know what is what 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 is the, how does the international community react in your sense is it just a matter of hey you know there's there's so many wild cards including nuclear weapons in there that everybody just kind of stays out and has to sit and watch as events unfold well in the current context where like you know the north korea thing is is barely registering on the global radar relative to you know the coronavirus uh, and Great Depression fears, and China, U.S., you know, World War Three. So, like, North Korea just doesn't rate. Um, and so, if 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 the regime went tits up all of a sudden, I don't I don't think there's anything that the international community like. I think there would be a lot of paralysis. Like, where nobody is is well positioned. China's probably better positioned than others, but you know, nobody wants to see China kind of like take over North Korea. Um, cause that has all kinds of second order strategic problems. So, uh, we're just in trouble. And I, I think this is why there's so much like the zeitgeist has been focused on this, like Kim Jong-un health question, because there's a lot of like implicit or like subconscious recognition that we're going to be in, we're all potentially in very big trouble. Um, if North Korea destabilizes and, you know, Kim Jong-un dying prematurely could be like a, a trigger for that. Um, but we don't, we haven't thought through enough how as an international community we would deal with that. And even in the U.S. context, the only way we've thought about like um, stability problems in North Korea is with like in an O-plan sense of 50-29. That's basically a war plan, you know. And so like if, if the only thinking you've done about stability is like, oh, how are we going to go to war favorably? That's problems. So I'm going to stop short of, this will, I think might be my last question. I'm going to stop short of um, asking you, do you think Kim Jong-un is alive or dead? Um, but I, I guess related to that, how long, if Kim Jong-un is, is, is no longer alive or say he dies in the next week or two weeks or at some point, how long could we be left in the dark about that? Uh, potentially for quite a while. It depends on, on how North Korean elites react. Um, so we can, we can deduce or infer a lot from how different ministries are issuing public statements, what they're saying, um, or different, um, institutions like the party itself, if they start issuing statements, like we can start piecing together or triangulating whether Kim Jong-un has in fact died. Like would the Korean workers party ever issue a statement like this if Kim Jong-un was dead or alive kind of thing. So we can, we'll be able, once elites start reacting, we'll be able to like piece it together fairly quickly, but it could be weeks. Like he, it's possible he's dead right now. And we just don't know. Well, well, Van, thank you very much. I uh, appreciate you taking some time uh, out of your schedule to share some thoughts about this. I, I do find it remarkable, like you said, if this was you know almost any other time, um, certainly since he took power uh, in North Korea, 
this is what you know this would be leading uh the the news bulletins it'd be wall-to-wall coverage and yet uh it's not getting a lot of uh, a lot of discussion in certainly in mainstream media because um we got a lot of other things going on so i appreciate you taking the time in kind of a a crazy period to uh to share some of your thoughts with us yeah yeah thanks for having me on Hey, thanks again for listening to the MWI podcast. One last thing before you go, if you aren't yet following MWI on social media, find us on Twitter, Facebook, LinkedIn, and as of a few weeks ago, Instagram. It is a great way for us to stay in contact with the incredible community of listeners and readers who share our interests in topics related to modern war. All right, thanks again. Thanks again.